it's just what it's all about. How I So, how's everybody doing? Labor Day? How's that? Did you guys honor the meaning of a holiday by sleeping in? Good for you. Good for you. Well, some of you didn't. That's okay. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. Uh, I'm the campus minister with Reform University Fellowship, otherwise known as RUAP. Uh, RUAP is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve New Mexico State and the students of New Mexico State. Let me tell you a little bit about RUAP. RUAP exists for the convinced, for the unconvinced, for the believer, the unbeliever, for the positive and the negative, for the southern New Mexican, and the northern New Mexican, and for those of you who don't care, because you're clearly from Portales or California. <laughs> so, exists for you too. And our exists for those of you who are just visiting Jesus and RUF. And our exists for those of you who call RUF and Jesus home. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, thanks so much for coming. I hope you feel welcome. Um, we hope to get to know you at RUF, and I hope you get to know RUF. Um, really, that looks like this. If you've been around RUF for a while, make sure that you talk to somebody new. Um, maybe come to, to Village Inn, my first shameless plug of the evening. Um, that'd be great. Uh, enjoy some pie. Um, I don't know what seasonal Village these days. Strawberry lemonade? Strawberry lemonade? It was really good. Was it really good? Okay, so we got some testimonials out in the crowd. That's <laughs> fine. That's good. Strawberry lemonade, I'm going to check that out. Um, you can't go wrong, wrong with the pecan, caramel, what is that? It's just, it's just delicious. It's just delicious. We didn't know what that was. It's delicious pie. Um, okay, if you're new, thank you so much for coming. It's an act of courage to come to something new, to not know many people, or maybe know no one. Um, so we want to thank you for that, and I hope that you feel welcomed and invited in to already go out. That's my sincere hope. Is there a sign-up somewhere? Yeah. Cool. Okay, Jen has it. So uh, maybe pass it around. This is a great opportunity to get more involved, plug into already go out. It just gives you information about what's going on. Uh, we promise we won't cyber-stalk you. I don't even know what that is. Uh, does that mean you're looking at profiles too much on Facebook? <laughs> Anyway, um, so it's just a good way to get connected. Also, check out our Facebook website. It's NMSURUF. That's a great way to sign up for that, and, and that will you'll get a lot of announcements about things going on. Okay, T-shirts. Look, I'm pretty sure that for twelve dollars, a three-quarter length sleeve T-shirt is a man-made wonder of the world. <laughs> I'm just saying. Have you seen the T-shirts? No one's wearing them because they're that precious. <laughs> I'm just saying. No one wants to get that. I mean, lose asleep on that thing is no longer a wonder of the world. Okay? It's just a half wonder of the world. Okay. Um, look at your bulletin for a second. It'll just go on all night, just so you know. Look at your bulletin for a second. On the back, there's announcements. Uh, lots of things going on you at. Take one or two things that you think you might be interested in, uh, whether that's a Bible study, uh, whether that's an REF meal, or uh, a personal favorite, Fridays with Chelsea. Uh, which is like Tuesdays in Boria, except it's not about terminal illness. So, I think it's a positive change. Uh, so that's just recess and lunch on Fridays. 
next step uh, to step into the living room of our UF, so to speak, and try to Bible study. It's a great place to know Jesus more and a great place to feel known more by the community of UF. So uh, take advantage of that. Hopefully. Okay, one final announcement. Marif uh, is not the local church. We are an extension or a mission of the local church here on campus. Just like Jesus didn't stay in heaven and say, come here, we're going to the campus and saying, let's meet you where you are. Uh, and the churches are great enough to support our mission. Um, that's why I'm also suggesting that you go check it out next few weekends. I really hesitate to say this because I'm, I'm afraid that this might uh, be a complete bonus or more likely a complete deal breaker for you. But I'm preaching at both the churches listed in the bulletin uh, next Sunday and the Sunday after. Look, you've just got to know when to say when. That's it, okay? If, if you need to check it out on the other week, like sun, this Sunday I'll be at UPC, the next Sunday I'll be at Grace Covenant. If you need to do the opposite weeks, just get your, got your fill on Tuesdays, it's a lot. Uh, I can't handle that spiritual gift of awkwardness that continues to bless my soul. Uh, maybe just, you know, take a break uh, and try it out in a different week. But uh, I won't be recycling sermons from this week or next week, so you won't... Don't worry about that. Um, so that's, that's really about it on the announcement side. Let's look at what we're going to talk about today, which is um, John chapter 1. And as uh, maybe you're turning there your Bible and your bulletin, uh, let me tell you about what we're doing in large group. In large group, we're doing the I Am Statements of Jesus. So we're going to walk through the book of John by looking at the chapters of excuse me, the passages that Jesus talks to his followers about who he is. Um, those people who followed around the Middle East some 2,000 years ago, and then those of us who are following around the Bible 2,000 years later. Uh, Jesus says things like, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world, I am the vine, I am the resurrection of life, and so on. Uh, therefore, I know this is so clever, last week you were just taken by surprise, your breath was taken away. Um, here's our title for our series. I am defines who I am. I know, I know, guys, it's, it's amazing, clever, clever. And really what I'm trying to say is this, in that clever title, knowing Jesus, that is, I am, changes the way that we understand who we are. Okay? In fact, knowing Jesus transforms all of us, not just our minds. That's the premise of what we're talking about uh, throughout the whole story. And really we're about to start our semester-long journey through the book of John, and some of us will need to get over the many, 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 many times we've looked at the Gospel of John. Whether it's a church retreat, a youth camp, a Bible study, Sunday school, every year your church decides to go to the Gospel of John, that's okay, we need to get over that. Okay? Surely, yes, there's lots of familiar stuff to some of us in the book of John. We've been around the Christian block, we know a thing or two. Okay? But there's a lot that's equally unfamiliar to us. Also, remembering that Scripture is shallow enough for a baby to play in, but deep enough to drown an elephant. Okay, that's a quote from St. Augustine. I think it's a brilliant quote. So what it really means is that Scripture holds up under rereading. It bears repeating. Okay, that's sort of what he's getting at with that. Uh, also, going through the I Am statements of Jesus might be a new, fresh, and unfamiliar take on a familiar book. But for those, there's others of us, maybe many of us here, who familiarity is not our primary problem. It's trust. It's taking Jesus at his word 
And that will be so rough for us. It will be trusting what he says about himself will be downright difficult. After all, he says some very tough things, doesn't he, to us in the scriptures? They challenge us to the core of who we are. But also, um, many of us here, maybe most of us here, have trust issues. Okay? Let me just quickly, I, I promised myself I wouldn't talk about this, but I'm going to. Um, I grew up in the inner city of Columbus, in the edges of Columbus, Ohio, inner city. My bike was stolen at least seven or eight times. I've got more trust issues, if not a lot of trust issues than most of you, okay? I don't, I mean, literally one time I was riding bikes with my friend who had a new bike, and some guy said, hey, can I ride that? And I said, sure, because we learned to share, and the guy just took off. And I wasn't even phased a day later, because that happened all the time. So, like, here we go, okay? So you, maybe you have something terrible in your life that's not a bike stolen, I'm sorry. Um, and we're here to talk to you about that walk with you, but just so you know, I have trust issues. Okay. Uh, look, as much as I would like to and we would like to go throughout life without trusting anybody, it's just not possible. I want you to hear this quote from Graham Greene, an author who I appreciate. He says this, It's impossible to go through life without trust. That is to be imprisoned in the worst cell of all, oneself. Okay? It's impossible to go through life without trust. That is to be imprisoned in the worst cell of all, oneself. What Green is saying there is, look, we have to give our trust to someone. So why not trust Jesus, who says he can't and he won't drop? Okay, that's our premise this semester going forward. So let's look, take a look at this Jesus. Last week, we ate our Exodus Wheaties in the, in the words of general intern. Uh, we went to the book of Exodus, we looked at Moses, we looked at how God names himself Moses. God calls himself Yahweh. Yahweh's translated best, the Lord, fine, but I think even better, I am. Okay? And that's what when Jesus is saying, I am, for the book of John, he's not just saying, I'm a vine. He's saying, I am God who is like a vine. And that was important for setup. And this week we're going to continue our introduction by looking finally at the book of John. But don't get your hopes up, we're not looking at I am statement yet. Okay? Still an introduction. Okay? We're going to look at the confession of John the Baptist very beginning of the Gospel of John, in the first chapter. And this is really important. I think, um, first of all, this is going to confuse us all night. John the Baptist and the Gospel of John. Okay, different Johns, so don't get confused there. Okay, I'm going to say John the Baptist as much as possible, but that doesn't exactly roll up the tongue. So I'll do the best I can. Usually when I refer to John, I'm referring to John the Baptist. Okay. But really what John the Baptist is teaching us is to hold Jesus as he truly is, We've got to confess Jesus properly. Okay? To behold Jesus as he really is, we've got to confess him properly. And so with that in mind, if you look at uh, your scripture, your Bible, or if you have this handy dandy green sheet, look on the inside right. Let's take a look. John chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 19 through 30. Uh, let me stand and read the scripture. So Paul. Okay. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 30. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he said, I'm no. So they asked him, Who are you? 
We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent to him from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Friends, these are the words of God. They are more precious than gold, even much fine gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Can you pray with me? Father, it's hot up here. I'm tired. Um, I feel extremely awkward and uncomfortable. And I pray that you help me to get over myself. And I pray that your word would shine through and brightly and that time would melt away. And the things that we brought into this room, we leave behind and we turn and follow you. Jesus, I pray that you would be high and lifted up in our hearts, that you fix our hearts upon you, like we sang earlier. I pray, Father, that your spirit will send and fill us quickly. We need ears to hear what you've got to say to us, and eyes to behold your Son in all of his glory. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can see you.
So you're telling me I'm not the center of her own attention? <laughs> like, I just thought because I was the center of my own attention that everyone else followed suit. No. Look. <laughs> I bet if we were all willing to dig through the layers of hardened past embarrassments, if we were willing to go there together with that shovel of the mines, so to speak, we could not, we could all find a moment in our lives just like this. There's certainly the embarrassment of being wrong and being corrected, but I think there's a deeper, more intense pain of realizing how wrong we are about reality. Okay. There we are living life and thinking that the world works like a first-person novel. Okay? Everything I say, everything I do, everything I think, Everything I am is at the center of the story of the world. I move the action. The action of the story revolves around me. But although life feels first person, reality is actually in the third person. And this is why I learned on that family vacation. And still have to learn to this day, even up here on stage. The story of the world, reality, revolves around not a me, not an I, but a he, God. Do we get this? He, God, is at the center. He is at charge and center of reality. Reality revolves around him, not around me, not around us. That's what the universe's plot goes like. I love the way that a friend of mine named David Jones, I keep having to look up a friend of mine's name, David Jones, he was a, he was a pastor over in California, and he said this, look, there's a lot of ways of thinking about this issue. Some people give their success center stage. Some people give their sin center stage. Some people even give their suffering center stage. Okay? But some people give Jesus' grace center stage. What David was saying is this. Either we give some aspect of ourselves center billing, or we give Jesus center billing. That is, ask yourself these questions. What do our hearts stew on? What do we not over when we can't sleep? What do we want to think about and talk about constantly? What is our life center on? In the words of our passage tonight, what's our confession? What's our confession? And this, by the way, is John the Baptist. Why this passage about John the Baptist's confession is so absolutely magnificent. Okay, beautiful passage in Scripture. Because this passage is about John's heart, and it tells us by talking about John's heart what the heart of Christianity is all about. There John is with a crowd of people in the middle of the desert. And by the way, this crowd of people was huge. Just think about the whole Pan Am Center, several Pan Am Center filled several times over with lots and lots and lots and lots of people. Think about that for a second, okay? And there they are, just trying to get a glimpse of John. And but in the middle of this, John does not forget to remember that he's not the center of things. John knows that Jesus must take the center stage, not only near the Jordan River, but in his own heart, in his affections. John knows that only when he decreases in his own eyes and the eyes of all those people around him, only then will Jesus increase in his, the eyes of his own heart in the eyes and the hearts of those around him. Look, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 
verses 19 through 30, we get a glimpse of how radically challenging and radically beautiful Christianity really is. All at once. Here we see John the Baptist confess, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. And we watch him behold someone other than him, the Lamb of God. And at the root of these two actions and the whole passage tonight is a question that we will come to over and over and over again in some form of another. It's really the center and the summary of all this work, all this passage. Will we get over ourselves and let Jesus define himself? So that he can redefine us. Will we get over ourselves and let Jesus define himself? So that he can redefine us. Look, as I already hinted at, the challenging and beautiful question of Jesus is woven in a story with two distinct movements of John the Baptist. First, in verses 19 through 28, which is a pretty big movement, we're called to confess that John the Baptist, we're called to confess John the Baptist's confession. And it's this, I'm not the Christ, I'm just a voice. I'm not the Christ, I'm just a voice. Then in verses 29 through 30, we're asked to see what John the Baptist beholds. And it's this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, let me put this in a more simple way, and maybe a more relevant way. In short, verses 19 through 28 say this, they call us to confess we're not Jesus. Okay? Then verses 29 through 30 ask us to behold the real Jesus. So we're called to confess we're not Jesus, then we're asked to behold the real Jesus. And that's really the heart of this passage. So let's look at this passage for a minute, shall we? Uh, chapter 1 of John, starting in verse 19. We're going to look at verses 19 through 28 and look at the confession that we're not Jesus. Look, last week I said this, and I really am sticking by this point that a lot of times when we read scripture, we're really not going there with our imagination. We're really not going there to picture the sights and sounds and the colors and the people of scripture. So let's take a moment and capture the details of John the Baptist for a second. Do you realize how extremely unlikely it is that John the Baptist has this kind of following? That this many people are lining up to see and to hear John the Baptist. Okay, let's just take kind of some stock for a second. Just listen to the description of the courtesy of a children's story of the Bible. Okay? John was a bit unusual. He lived in the desert. He wore itchy, scratchy outfits made of camel hair. He had a big, bushy beard and long, long, scraggly hair. And he had, and here's the oddest thing of all. He ate only locusts. Locusts are short for big, creepy, crunchy grasshoppers. <laughs> Which he dipped in honey, probably for the taste. <laughs> well, John's not so flattering, maybe his messages, right? Like, you know, he's saying five steps to feeling fine again. <laughs> well, not exactly. Listen to what, again, what Silo Jones, that author of the Children's Story of the Bible, says that John's saying, a paraphrase, it's a beautiful one. God sent John to tell his people something very important. Stop running away from God and run to him instead. You need to be rescued. Well, that's not exactly uplifting. That's not feeling fine. 
modern day perspective, just so you can picture this with me uh, together. It's like the homeless guy near the bus station becoming a legitimate rock star, not just a YouTube sensation, okay? Because he growls at people and says, get bets. That's exactly what's going on in the ancient Near East, okay? That's my modern parallel. And not only is John's appearance and his message not that appealing, it's jarring. So was what he was doing. This is harder to see because we're not in this original context. He's baptizing everybody. Baptism in those days was only for non-Jews. It was a sign that you were unclean. And so they would wash you with water to make you ceremonially or religiously clean. And so what is John doing? He's not just baptizing non-Jews, he's baptizing primarily Jews. And he's saying, in essence, you're unclean. Here's the deal. Unclean is a way that the Bible, what the Bible calls sin. And sin knows no racial boundaries. That's one of the beautiful things that John's bringing before. And maybe that's in the heart of heart why people are filling the Pan Am Center full of people to come and see him preach. And be baptized. And so, you know, in the middle of this strangeness, the religious authorities come from Jerusalem, and they have a few questions. And that questioning begins in verses 19 and 24. Yes, he seems like, who are you? Are you Elijah the prophet who never actually died? Are you the prophet predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18? Are you here to tell us that the end is coming? John denies all of these well-meaning religious assumptions. Why? Look, these religious authorities from Jerusalem, the Levites, the priests, the Pharisees, all of them were coming basically due to this, to give the equivalent of a religious parking ticket to John who doesn't even drive a car. Here's what I mean by that. Their categories of religion were so far off from Jesus and John and the Jesus that he preached. Here's what this should make us really pause and think, okay? Think about it. John, the Jesus that he proclaims, okay? That guy. Both John and Jesus don't fit, they don't work like good, moral, Bible-reading people think they should. I think that leads to a good question for all of us. Do we really know who Jesus is? I know it's uncomfortable, but we need to wrestle with that. Do we really know who Jesus is? I would, especially if you're sitting there thinking, boy, this semester is going to be all review in RUF. You need to really think about do we know who Jesus is? Maybe you're wrong about Jesus. Maybe he isn't just some nice guy who gives us a great example. I hope you take the time together this semester with us to walk through, this, through the Gospel of John and, and to question what we've learned about Jesus in a healthy, happy way, but to question it. To question what we've learned in church and also what we've learned in our classrooms. To think about who is the real Jesus according to the eyewitness accounts. People like John the Baptist that are written in Scripture. That's what we're hoping to do, hearing it from Jesus himself often. And this is because the Jesus that we expect to see isn't always, and isn't even usually, the Jesus that we do see. That's important to take away. But that's not even the most personal, deepest insight from this part of the scripture. Just wait, okay? This is, this John is saying a couple of things. The same thing in verse 20 that he's saying in verses 26 through 27. So in verse 20, John is saying, I am not the Christ. 
And then in verse 26 through 27, he's saying, I'm not fit to, top, to untie the sandal of Jesus. John is saying that he's not the Christ. By the way, for the record, most of you know this, but it bears repeating. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Okay? Although I really have a fondness for Jesus H. Christ, because I just really want to know what the H stands for. <laughs> kind of bothers me. Um, but I, I, that's not the point. Is it's actually Christ is not the last name. Christ is a title. And the title has something to do with an ancient prophecy. And the ancient prophecy says that Jesus, not John, is the rescuer because he's the Christ. And he comes to wipe out all the evil and all the suffering in this world. And he is first by wiping out the evil and the suffering within us, and then next and finally by wiping out the evil and suffering across the face of the earth and the nooks and the crannies of all creation. Also, John is saying something. He is not so much the Christ that he cannot... He's so much the Christ, not the Christ. Let me do this again. Focus. Okay. John is so much not the Christ that he's not even worthy to untie, let alone tie the sandal of Jesus. Okay? By the way, the sandal is not the most appropriate or dignified part of Jesus. It's the part that's sweat-stained, dirty, and covered with manure. He's saying I'm not even fit to do that. But in the midst of all this, like, incredibly interesting explanation, let's not miss the point. Okay? The point is this. It's a personal point. John is saying something extremely offensive. Extremely offensive, but totally worthwhile and interesting and wonderful. John is saying something that I hope to be able to say more and more and more. I am a nobody. I'm a nobody. Look, some of you are getting on your cell phones and about to call the self-esteem police. And saying, this guy has problems, he needs to be taken away and taken back to that land of juice boxes, coloring books, and safety scissors that is kindergarten. He has serious problems. And that's probably true. But let me explain what I mean that that's a beautiful confession. In our present day psychological culture, we've set up a false choice. Okay? That false choice is between despair and self confidence, between depression well-being. The way not to feel bad about yourself is to only feel good about yourself. The way to avoid thinking too low about yourself is to only think too high about yourself. To avoid thinking too low about yourself, you've got to think or think too little about yourself. You've just got to think too, too much about yourself. Do you see this false choice? This is why children grow up with bowling that has bumpers in the gutters and foam dodgeballs, and they get gold stars for showing up to things. That's where, this is where it's coming from. But before I get in the soapbox, let me tell you why it's personally so affecting. It's because we can't stop ping-ponging back and forth between despair and arrogance, between pride and cowardice. Just think about how we receive criticism for a second. It's always someone else's fault. Okay? Or it's always my fault. What about it being a mixture of things? What if it's actually a healthy mixture of both? Consider the way that we receive advice. It's always, I've got this under control. Or I'm a weepy, needy, crumbling mess. 
Finally, think about how we receive confidence. They seem, at least for me, like stating the obvious. Or, <laughs> or the very oxygen I need to live. Therefore, we spend all of our waking moments in fear of being a nobody, trying desperately through things like looks and grades and family and job and education to finally and fully be a somebody. And for some of this, this doesn't work. For some of us, this doesn't work out at all. And for others of us, it works out almost too well. But the Bible suggests a different definition, a different goal for who we are. Listen to the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. Humility, that is what Jesus, that is what John the Baptist portrays, and what we're called to have. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. Humility is not thinking less about your, less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. You see, the goal is self-forgetfulness. That's where freedom is. Self-forgetfulness, not self-esteem is what makes us truly fulfilled. To quote another theologian, G.I. Packer, happiness is to forget oneself in the daily preoccupation of seeking God's glory and doing His will and proving His power through the ups and downs and stresses and strains of everyday life. If we can do that, if we can forget ourselves, it changes the very way that we plan pray, and even study and work. Really, when we confess that we are not the Christ, we are saying that we want other people to primarily love Jesus and not us. Do you get that? We're saying, love Jesus, not us. And by the way, I know that transparency has a lot of cool Christian credibility, okay? but real transparency is not just honesty and authenticity for its own sake. Real transparency is actually being so open and so honest about our lives that people see through us, and there they see Jesus. That's transparency. A Jesus who is hard at work on our pet sins and our hard circumstances, maybe even our own desire to speak for, to be Christ in other people's lives. You see, the Christian's primary confession to the watching world is we need Jesus. That's our primary confession to the watching world. Our lives are not about how well put together we are, that we've got everything great. It's not about how picture perfect our friends and family are. Yes, there's a place for holiness. Yes, there's a place to be salt and light in this world. But that's not what we lead with in relationships. That's not what we rest in when we go to bed at night. Because here's the deal. Until Jesus comes again, or we die and meet our maker, our holiness fails. It fails. But Jesus, he never, ever, ever fails. This is why our primary Christian confession goes something like this. It's Jesus who heals, not I. It's Jesus who speaks words of truth, not I. Jesus who is Lord, not I. We do not come in our own name, but in the name of the Lord Jesus, who sent us, 
We are not the healers. We are not the reconcilers. We are not the givers of life. We are sinful, broken, vulnerable people who need as much care as anyone that we care for. The mystery of ministry is that we have been chosen to make our limited and very conditional love the gateway for God's unlimited and unconditional love. For those of you who've been around RUF for a while, you've heard that. That's a quote by Henry Nowen. I say a lot, we say a lot together, we confess a lot, because it's true and it's worth repeating over and over and over again. This true confession heals reconciles and gives life because it points away from someone who can't give life, who can't heal, who can't reconcile, me. And it points towards someone who can, Jesus. That's exactly what John the Baptist realizes when he proclaims what he beholds in verses 29 through 30. Let me read those again. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Here John the Baptist beholds the real Jesus. The one of first importance to his second important stature. Jesus is the eternal God who was born a man younger than John. Verse 30, Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away, bear off, get rid of, carry away the sins of the world. That is, Jesus forgives, Jesus heals, Jesus transforms the sins of everyone who believes in him. And all the tribes, and all the tongues, and all the nations of all the world. And not just the people of Israel, like the original people who read their Bible thought. The best way I know to explain this huge statement about who Jesus is, who he really is, is not to dive into some sacred history of lamb slaughter. Okay? That's what a lot of commentaries do. Instead, I'd like to tell the story of C.S. Lewis's conversion. C.S. Lewis is the guy who I quoted earlier, he's a theologian, scholar, a writer, who I quoted earlier about humility. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, Lewis comes to Christianity by an earnest attempt at complete virtue. He decides to give absolute preference to his neighbor's wants and desires, not his own. This doesn't last very long. <laughs> this true experiment and what it means to put your neighbor first before you lasts just a little while. All it, all it takes for Lewis to realize that he, within himself, has a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, and a harem of fondled hatreds. This discovery of his own sin and his desperation leads him to embrace God on God's own terms as the Lamb of God. I want you to, I'm just going to read this. It's beautiful. You should understand it really captures the character of the Lamb of God. This is C.S. Lewis's account of his conversion. You must picture me alone in the room in Magdalene college in England, night after night, feeling, when, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. 
In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. And perhaps that night, I became the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. Who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking and struggling and resentful, darting his eyes in every direction, just for a chance of escape. Oh, the depths of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. Okay. Do you get what Lewis is saying there? Do we hear it? It's God's mercy that he humbled himself to the earth and to that cross, and even to our dejected and reluctant university dorm rooms, whether it's 1929 or 2012. And it's all of God's mercy that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was willing to decrease so that we might increase. That's who Jesus really is. Do we get that? That's really what this passage is all about. The biggest lie that we have to wrestle with, the biggest lie that we have to wrestle with is life is a story about me. The biggest lie we have to wrestle with is life is a story about me. And the biggest truth that we have to wrestle for is life is a story about Jesus. Are we going to realize reality's story is not about me? Or will we believe that Jesus' story is better? It's a better story than my story. What will it look like for us to care more about Jesus' story than to care about ourselves? I think it looks like two things. I think it looks like confessing with our words and with our hands and with our feet. I am not the Christ. I'm a nobody who needs a somebody. Jesus. Second, I think it would look like holding Jesus as the Lamb of God who died once and for all for all our sins. And seeing and beholding that in our plans, in our prayers, in our scripture, and in our studies. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that some of this would uh, penetrate our hearts I pray that we would get over ourselves. This is a hard, challenging message um, to people like me who just care a lot about ourselves. And I pray that you, Father, would use this time, even use this next song, for us to meditate on who we really are in you, what it means to behold you, who you really are in all your humility. I pray, Father, that wouldn't let us leave this room unchanged. I pray, Father, that you would use this time together in the heat of this room, which is extremely hot, that you'd use it to change us. In Jesus' name, amen.